Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm Rob Kent, as you know, the author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, the greatest novel ever written. Uh, and it is available for you to download as an ebook for free whenever you're watching or listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. Uh, it's also available as a paperback, obviously, and the audiobook is narrated by the exquisite David Radke. Uh, Banneker Bones is an 11 year old biracial boy detective. His father is white, his mother is African American, his sister is Chinese. They are an American family. And this is my contribution to diverse books, is an interracial family in which the subject of their being an interracial family never comes up. They simply are who they are and their main concern is fighting these giant robot bees. Uh, you want to get a copy of this right now as soon as you can because here in May the sequel Banneker Bones and the Alligator People is coming out. Uh, I'm starting to feel those pre-release uh, chitters that I always get when I've got a new book coming out. Um, I've been hearing back from my early beta readers who are very excited about it. I'm excited about it. Uh, as you know, Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees is my favorite book. I think it still is. But the sequel, in my, in my opinion, whatever the author's opinion does for you, is as good as Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. It takes a good thing and expands the universe and, and makes it bigger. So be on the lookout for that. Uh, under the super secret pen name Robert Kent, I've written uh, some horror stories, including the young adult novel, All Together Now, A Zombie Story, and its companion piece, All Right Now, A Short Zombie Story. Uh, both are available now as uh, ebooks, paperbacks, and audiobooks. The audiobook for All Together Now is also narrated by the exquisite David Radke. You're definitely going to want to check those out, although be warned. Uh, just because I'm the middle grade ninja guy, I am uh, uh, capable of, of writing tremendous violence and 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 um, uh, things that you would expect when you come to a zombie story. You know, I just uh, binge watched Black Sunday on Netflix over the weekend. There are nonstop zombie stories available. If you're like me, you can't get enough of them. This is a zombie story by a zombie fan. So look forward to that. Uh, I've also got the five-volume horror series, The Book of David. Uh, this one is strictly for adults. Uh, lots of profanity, lots of offensive ideas, but the first chapter, if you're curious, chapter one of The Book of David and the five-volume series is available to download for free as an ebook whenever you're watching or listening to this, wherever ebooks are sold. Uh, and this is a book that intentionally graduates in intensity and in craziness. And the reason why is I'm hoping to scare off timid readers with chapter one. So if you make it to chapter two, I get a little bit meaner. Chapter three, a lot meaner. And then by the time we get to chapter five, it's just craziness. So pick up a copy of chapter one. If you're the sort of person that wants to read about an atheist who buys a haunted house that then begins, him, begins to give him religious visions about flying saucers, the book of David's your book. Uh, coming up here on the Middle Grade Ninja podcast, uh, on Thursday, we are going to be uh, fortunate enough to be chatting with literary agent Holly Root. That's going to be an excellent episode. You're not going to want to miss that. And then on Monday, we'll be talking with editor Allison Weiss. Uh, later in the month, we're going to be talking with literary agent Elena Roth Parker. Uh, just heard back from literary agent John Rudolph, who will be making an appearance in May, along with author Jessica Lawson, author Daniel Jose Older, uh, and author Maurice Broadus, plus some more surprise guests yet to be announced. So look forward to that. Uh, speaking of Maurice Broadus, 
This episode is sponsored in part by MoCon. MoCon is the premier uh, writer uh, conference here in Indianapolis. Uh, although it's got some competition now from RosieCon, but MoCon is something I look forward to. I've been looking forward to it all year. I will be there. Many editors, agents, authors will be there. Uh, you can go to mariespratis.com to get signed up now. Uh, it is running from May 3rd through May 5th. It's 75 bucks if you register early, and that includes food for three days. The food is included. You show up, everybody is going to be having a good time. You're gonna have a chance to have one-on-one -on -one discussions with me and with other publishing professionals. It's well worth your time. Come out, support MoCon. Uh, so we can do it again next year. Also, a special thanks to the folks who ran RosieCon this year. It was the first ever uh, RosieCon, and that's where I met today's guest, uh, Padma Bikatraman, uh, who I'm so excited to talk to. Padma, how are you today? I'm very well, thank you. Well, Padma, I'm uh, terrible about summarizing other people's books and other people's biographies. So if you would, to start us off, just tell the uh, esteemed audience a little bit about yourself and your background. Um, so I am the author of um, three novels, uh, actually four, <laughs> four now. Uh, my latest just came out, it's The Bridge Home, and I'm very excited about it. I'm holding up the audiobook because I actually did the audiobook version myself as well. And that was a first for me and, uh, and very exciting. So um, The Bridge Home is my fourth novel. And uh, just very succinctly, it's about two children, two girls who run away from home because of abuse and find themselves homeless on the streets of an Indian city where they find two boys that are orphans and living on the streets as well. And together with a dog that they adopt, they form a little family. And it's about everything that they go through together, their adventures, if you will in that terrible situation and you know their ability to laugh as well even though they have such a terrible situation so the bridge home is a novel that's sort of the newest baby and the one i'm most excited about and my previous novels are climbing the stairs um, my first novel which actually was edited by john rudolph who is now an agent who's going to be on your show uh, so there's a connection and my second novel islands end uh, so my first novel, Climbing the Stairs, uh, takes place in India in the 1940s. It was one of the first historical uh, fiction novels for young adults to be written and published in this country. Not the first, but one of the first. And uh, Island's End is about a tribe that uh, lived close to me when I was on the Andaman Islands of India as an oceanographer. So I ended up uh, coming to writing after doing a a PhD, a doctorate in oceanography and working as an oceanographer for a while. And Island's End is about leadership. It's about culture clashes between indigenous people and um, more the modern world and about rainforests and coral reefs and all these other things that are now threatened by our modern civilization. And A Time to Dance, which is my third novel, is the first young adult novel that deals with spirituality or spiritual awakening as a main theme as seen through the Hindu lens. So the lens of a young Hindu girl. 
Well, Padma, you've got such a, an amazing background. I want to talk a lot about The Bridge Home today because I am truly over the moon in love with this book. I try never to say I love one book other than others uh, because I talk to a lot of authors and that, yeah. that's a way to lose friends. But uh, I, I love your book more than some others. Uh, it's it's rapidly become one of my absolute favors, favorites. We're going to talk about that. I've been joking with uh, my wife over the, the weekend and the last week here knowing I was going to get to talk with you that how am I possibly going to talk uh, with someone as a accomplished as, as, as Padma is. And usually if I have a guest on the show, uh, I, I assume they're probably smarter than I am. And anybody who <laughs> listens or watches the show uh, would, would probably agree with that sentiment. Uh, but in this case, there, there's no ambiguity whatsoever. I know you're smarter than me. Um, so well, let's start with the fact that you've lived in five different countries. Uh, what has living in five different countries taught you about the world and what has it brought to your writing? I think um I could talk about that for just <laughs> a day in itself. Uh, first of all, though, I do want to say there are so many different kinds of intelligence and so many different kinds of smartness. And I'm sure that I'm not smarter than you in all of those ways, certainly not. And I think that's such an important thing really to recognize. I mean, sometimes we think of, of intelligence or smartness in only one way, and there is such a, such a lot. Um, such a lot of ways that we don't recognize as well. Anyways, uh, living well, I will in- quickly acknowledge that if you and I were to play Mortal Kombat, I, I might win. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, you certainly would. Um, so I grew up in India, so I was born in India, and I grew up and I was there for, mo- for the, most of my childhood and most of my teen years. So I was there for about 19 years. And then I ended up going to England on a scholarship and studying at an international school there. And that was, uh, it was called Brockwood Park. It was actually a lot like, um, you know, Hogwarts. It really was. Uh, It had a tower. We would go up there and look at the stars and all of this. Anyway, it, it was a wonderful year for me and a year during which I did a lot of writing. And it meant a lot to me actually that year that that people who were British, the people who had, uh, you know, or who knew English and no other language, to whom English was a first language, actually thought that I spoke it and I wrote it as if it were my mother tongue as well. So that was something that really was very helpful to me. Very, it felt very supported by that. And. After that, I came to the States and I've lived here for longer than I want to let you know because then you'll know my exact age. <laughs> not that I really care. Uh, but maybe I'm guessing something... around 25. Am I pretty close? Yeah, yeah. Just about five years ago. Anyways, uh, so I came here and I went to graduate school in at the College of William and Mary and I studied oceanography. And it, it was quite an unusual decision for... I think a woman of color, uh, but also in India, we we have, you know, there were lots of social uh, stigmas attached to things and oceanography was not usually on the radar for anyone, but uh, I did it anyway and I'm very glad that I did. And after I did oceanography, I, I you know, and during the course of many other things, I finished my doctorate, I went, did my uh, postdoc at um, Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. But in between, I worked in Germany for a while and I worked in the United Arab Emirates as well for a while. So I've lived actually in those five countries beyond other countries that I've visited. 
And I think the one thing that I've learned is that we say a lot about equality. We, you know, we mouth these words, but then I think the experience of actually living in those countries is what brought it home to me in really in my head and also in my heart. Uh, the idea that no matter what religion you subscribe to, no matter what ethnicity you might have, what race you might have, what gender you might have, and you know where you might be on the uh, ability disability spectrum, it doesn't matter. You, you know there are things that we all share, and there's also things that we will never share. And I think both need to be respected in that you know each of us is 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 very very different as well from everyone else. Does that make sense? It, it does, um, and I've got so many, so many questions for you. Um, I want to go back for just one quick second because I know you've, you've talked about your upbringing before without uh, dragging the whole thing out. I know that um, you were in a situation somewhat similar to the children uh, in the bridge home and, and that you were in an abusive household and then uh, you were raised by a single mother and you were um, uh, not necessarily in, in dire poverty yourself, but but certainly surrounded by by quite a bit of poverty. How did you get from there to winning a scholarship to ascend to where you're at today on the middle grade ninja show? I think a lot of things changed. So when you know I was born into a family that was extremely wealthy, uh, but my mother was was fiercely independent as was I. So when my father and my mother split up, which was extremely unusual in India, you know I was the only child with with parents who were separated that I knew growing up. And that's not to say it never happens, but I was the only one in, you know, at my school, for instance, and so on. I, uh, you know, after he left, we had a huge fall. My mother started uh, with less than zero in the bank because there was a huge burden of debt as well. So that means that it was, it was very, uh, very, very difficult for several years. So throughout my childhood after that, so eight on up until through when I left India and went away. And for many other years, you know, it was, it was very, very tough for my mother. It's only recently, I think, that she feels a little more comfortable. And of course, once I left and I was, you know, ultimately on my own dime and you know it was a little difficult being a graduate student but people would con complain all the time about how poor they were as graduate students and and yes it was difficult those were the days that we could not we couldn't do what we're doing now which is so remarkable to me technology was not that advanced so i would have to call my mother on the phone and you'd have these operators that said three minutes and then they would cut you off after three minutes and that was the one phone call i had every month to connect with my mother, who was overseas. And where I lived in Southern Virginia, there was no one else that I knew who were, you know, no friends or family nearby, except for the friends that I made at the school. And so that's something that I think many authors, even who are second generation or who have come here with their parents at a young age to this country, don't completely understand what that feels like and how very independent you need to be to be able to do something like that. And I don't even think I thought twice about it until now. And recently, you know, I, somebody was talking about something and I imagined my own child at 19 leaving and going halfway across the world. That's when I realized what I did. And I think it is, it can be quite scary. And uh, certainly for me, it was, it was, uh, it was different. It was interesting. 
I learned a lot. I learned certainly to be independent, to be on my own two feet. And well, now I think I'm fine financially, luckily. I'm, I'm not necessarily rolling in wealth, but I certainly have a degree that I can fall back on. And I think the thing that I learned the most from my mother was this. She had a lot of education. And that was why when my father left home and left uh, her in this financial mess, and me as well, he did not pay toward my upkeep or any of that. And when that happened, I think the reason that she was able to to take off, to, uh, take off is not quite the word perhaps, but to make ends meet really was because she had, a, you know, a, an education and she always talked about that. The importance of that education that nobody could take away from her and how she could fall back on that and use that uh, to, to start from scratch or less than scratch, I should say. Well, you're obviously a fierce determination, fiercely independent. Um, but anytime I talk to someone extraordinary, and I consider you to be extraordinary, one question I want to ask you the hopes of, of becoming extraordinary, or maybe at the very least, uh, inspiring someone else to, who, who might be listening or watching to become extraordinary, are what are the qualities that you fell back on? What is it that motivated you? Because I'm sure that there are other people that are in similar circumstances. Certainly, I know lots of people in, in, in much softer circumstances who have not gone on to do all the things that you've done so what kept you motivated what continues to motivate you um first of all i mean i must say i'm not extraordinary at all um by a long shot but i think what kept me motivated what kept me going there there were several things that i think were important to me growing up one of them was that i felt you know i, I had seen what my mother had had gone through and that made me firmly convinced that I needed to be able to call the shots when I wanted to. In my own life, I wanted to be the person dictating the terms. So that was very important to me. She certainly was a strong uh, female in a culture that did not necessarily always value strong females. And so I think she taught me that it was fine to be alone and that that was not something that uh, very early on I, I knew the difference between loneliness and being alone and i think being alone is a choice that you make and sometimes for instance if you're the only female uh, of color in an in an on an entire ship uh, which is dominated by or is filled with just white men and you are the chief scientist which was the situation for me sometimes then you have made the choice to be alone. And I think that gives gave me a certain courage. I'd never felt lonely on a vessel, but I knew that I was alone. And that's a bit different. I think there's sort of a dignity that comes with that choice, maybe, of, of being able to do that on your own. So um, that's something that I took away. And I think I learned very early in my life not to not to depend on other human beings, which is to say, not even emotionally. I, and that doesn't mean I don't, I don't like people. I actually like people a lot. And uh, I think, you know, by virtue of what I'm doing now, being a, an author, especially writing for young people, you don't make a whole lot of money. But I do that because I care and because I think my words might matter and I think my words can touch people in a way that nothing else I do can touch people. 
And to me, writing is a way, is an act of compassion. It's a way to sort of increase the compassion and empathy there is in the world. And so I think that's why I write. And I think I learned very early on that those things matter, that compassion matters, that empathy matters, that, that human beings matter a lot and you can reach out to them that way, but also that you should never allow another human being to to take over your life or your emotions maybe or your life and it was very you know my siblings would constantly were much older than me who were out of the house and adults before anything happened to me and before my parents split up would constantly say all the time and they still do five minutes into any conversation if there's anything going wrong they will cite what happened to me actually uh, where, you know oh our father split up oh our father did this and I think you don't even know the half of it. And I will never, ever use, I've decided that when I was about eight, I will never use my father or any other person. And there are other violent men in my family, though they may not think they are. I will never use them as an excuse for what I am. I will never use them as an excuse for my behavior. I will never allow anything that happened to me to define who I am in a negative way. And so I think, yes, economic hardship that I did face Yes, I was always the poor cousin. Um, and, you know, then again, I had other people around me who had more. And maybe that itself provides a, a kind of security in the family. But I think I learned very early that I wasn't going to let those, those things that other people could see as negative impact me negatively. And I think that's a choice I made. And as you pointed out, one of the things that did happen was that I, you know, my mother did did a lot of work, a lot of charity work in her time. And that's where I met kids like the kids in the bridge home. And so I knew what dire poverty was. And when people here say they grew up very poor, you know, I say sometimes poor now because I've lived in this country for so long. But when they talk about dire poverty or when they say they were grew up in poverty, to me, poverty was not having a roof over your head. Poverty was being hungry and you know when when my daughter comes home and says she's hungry that's not hunger i mean it's beyond uh imagination the level of hunger the level of of insecurity that the children some of the children that i got to know faced and one of the friends that i had came from a very very different socioeconomic class he was a dalit which i never thought about now thinking back on it i realized that he was and i think I think just knowing those children and no, seeing their, their courage, they were extraordinary. And that made an impact on me. The fact that they could be kind, the fact that they could laugh in spite of all that they had seen, that was extraordinary. I'm chuckling. I was uh, reading The Bridge Home last week, uh, and my five-year-old was uh, complaining because I'd given him the food that wasn't the food he wanted to eat, so he was refusing to eat it and complaining. And I started giving him a speech about the kids in The Bridge Home, and my wife comes over and says, are you giving him the starving kids in China speech? And I said, no, this is the starving kids in India speech. Very different. <laughs> Well, I want to I want to talk about the novel, but just a couple quick uh, questions about your bio first, um, just because it, it is not not unheard of and not not that unusual. But you have a very scientific mind, obviously. So, how do you balance both the uh, left and right portions of your brain? 
um, so well that you you've been able to excel both as an oceanographer. What 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 also drew you to the sea versus what's now got you out and about and 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 doing something very uh, left brain minded, which is promoting your novels. I'm not sure I'm uh, you know I'm not sure I'm good at both or that I excel at both. I think I might just be a fake in two fields. Um, but anyways. I well, I can't, I can't speak to what sort of oceanographer you are because I haven't seen you out there, but I did read your book and I can absolutely attest that you are an excellent novelist. Thank you. Um, I think the this idea of the two brains and all of that, I, I see the sort of reductionist uh, idea which tends to come from Euro Europeans and Euro Eurocentrics. And I think to me growing up in India, in Indian culture, there was never really a huge, I think, division made between the arts and the sciences in the way we do now uh, today in the West. And there's, there was also, I think, you know, even religion and spirituality and science were not necessarily set apart the way that they are, um, or they were even here historically with sort of, you know, Galileo being, being told that what he did was heresy. That didn't happen to other astronomers who, who made very similar discoveries in India independently of, of him. So I think that for me, I didn't see the two as different. And also, I, I've said this before, and you know, mathematics is music, and language at its best is music. And language sings in a way when you know, and there are patterns of of words on a page that are not that different to me, you know, in a sense than patterns of numbers. So they to me, they're integrated. To me, they are sort of facets of the same thing. There's rhythm, if you will. There's rhythm and, and uh, yeah, rhythm, music, pattern, all of that exists in language and all of that exists in music and all of that exists in mathematics and numbers too. That makes a lot of sense now that I hear you say that because it, there, there are passages, I, I, I check my highlights, I've got 90 some odd uh, highlights uh, from the book uh, and they're, they're very musical. Um, yeah. Obviously I, I didn't sing them, but they, they read in such a way to, to move the reader that, that I wonder how, how is she so good at science and also so good at this because it is a little bit rare that you get both. I've read a lot of science fiction authors where they've nailed the science and they haven't quite got the prose or the story down, but there's enough of an idea there that I'm still having a good time. Whereas in your case, there's, uh, at least in the bridge home, um, not so much science, but the, um, the storytelling is very much there and, and, and is very moving. In fact, let's just let's just go straight to the bridge home. You've sold an audiobook, at least one today, because uh, I read the ebook. And now that I know that you read the audiobook, I'm going to put it on my Audible collection immediately and download it because I bet that's an amazing performance. In fact, let's just start there. What was the experience of recording your own book as an audiobook? It was wonderful. Oh, I should say actually, um, the uh, the book just won an audiophone, uh, audiophile magazine um, earphone award, which I didn't even know existed, and I didn't even know they give um, awards that quickly because it just came out in February, so it's not that old. Um, well, congratulations! That's awesome. I was very excited because it's my first audiobook, and I wanted to do the best thing for the book. So uh, you know how that is. If you have a book, it's like a baby and you really want the best for it. So I did want to read my own book and I wondered if I should because I do like to read aloud, but I auditioned for the book and my audition went to the director who does, does 
audiobooks, and then she and I have a conversation, and then she brought up the names of some readers that I thought were wonderful. So I was on the fence as well, because I didn't know that I would be able to do a better job. And so then I spoke to her and I said, you know, I'm not really certain. And she said, I think you should give it a shot because I think the author brings something to it that no other reader can. And so even though you're inexperienced, I'll let you do it, which is fine. Um, and I did, and it was grueling. It's not easy because it's nothing like reading to, I don't know, to your son at night or something, because then you're reading a very short passage. This is reading for days on end. And if you're not a professional actor or actress, I think it's quite hard, but it, I'm so glad I did it. And I love this book and I would never pick favorites with any of my books, but at some level, this book has so much of myself in it. I think, you know, all the others as well have some parts of me in them, but this feels so personal, so close to me in so many ways. Every character is based on a real person. So much of the book is based on on true incidents and on my, and you know, there's so much of the emotion draws from what happened to me and my life. And um, I drew on all of that. So I think, I think it meant a lot to me to be able to read it. And I'm just very glad I did. It's, it's different, but I'm glad that I did that. It's challenging as well. Oh, I know exactly what you mean in terms of uh, picking a favorite among your books, because I love them all. I don't publish something that I don't love and think that won't be a good read for a esteemed reader. Uh, but Banneker is my favorite. It, it just is. Uh, mm -hmm. So I, I, I think I understand a little bit there. Can you go back and can you listen uh, to the audiobook and listen to yourself read your story? I can. With the other books, I have a hard time because I'm a person who constantly edits. So I always wonder if if I should have changed this word or something, you know, that sort of thing. And it's not to say that that would make it any better, by the way. I think my, my editor, Nancy Paulson, is absolutely brilliant. I couldn't have a better editor. And uh, I would never second guess her. I think she's, she's, she's amazing. I trust everything that she does to make my book better, to make our book better, I should say. Uh, but, but having said that, I think that when we when you, um, you know, read a book, when you edit a book, it's, it's something that a part of you just always, there's a, I call it the editor Padma and the author Padma. And I feel like the editor Padma just comes over my shoulder sometimes and says, hmm, maybe you should have done that, or maybe you should have done this. And, but with this book, no. I just, I think, I, I don't know, maybe I'm still in the, just infatuated with it. I hope I always will be. I've never regretted any, not a word that I felt that I would have used differently or anything. And maybe it's partly because I read the whole book out and you know I embodied it when I read it. That might be part of it too, but I love it. So it gave you sort of a release once you had read it and heard it and said, yes, no, I said the thing that I, I came to say, that is the book I intended and now I can move on to my next project? Yes, yes. I am very busy, so I'm not sure that I have moved on to a large project, but I have several things in the works, so we'll see what happens. 
Let me uh, ask you about the book, because I know it is based in part on your experience and on, on folks you knew. Uh, so two questions about that. One, what additional research did you still need to do to complete this book? And two, how do you balance the need to respect what happened and who the people that you're basing this on were versus your need as a storyteller to take the story in new places and, and serve your thematic concerns? Those are great questions, and I'm a little scared that they, they're each so important that I'm scared that I'm going to forget them. So first of all, uh, one of the things I think is so important is research. So even if you think you know a story, I th I think you need to do research because let's, let's say a, a certain person, an author, has two siblings, and let's say they were, you know, they were, they all grew up at the same time with the same parents in the same house. And there may have been incidents that they all experienced together, and yet each of them has a unique take on that incident, and they probably will remember it with slight differences. And it goes back to something we were talking about earlier, that each of us is different. And so there might be so much that's similar, but there is always that difference. And so I think even if you were writing your own memoir, you're not the same person you used to be. So you need to do some level of research. To, to go back and to understand maybe that other time or the other place in your own mind to connect with it emotionally, but also just physically to do research to see what was going on at that time. Perhaps what you remembered may not have been quite so accurate. Check what was actually available, what was there in terms of setting and so on. And I have seen sometimes, for instance, South Asian writers write about South Asia and get it wrong because they don't know enough. So I certainly, I was back in India. I, I go back um, every year, pretty much. We, I try to do that. And so I certainly did research when I was there. I spoke to, to uh, people who had worked with children. I spoke to children. I, I went to places. I don't want to say too much to give away anything, but I went to places like the places that the kids are in, in the bridge home. And I think all of that informed me. One of the other things that I really looked at and that was very, very important were notebooks that I had written when I was a child. So when I was a child, I loved books and I loved writing and I always thought I would be an author and I would write. So I wrote notes. Some, some of the children that my mother worked with that I spoke about would come to our house because I think they felt it was safe and sometimes they would come and talk to her. You know, they, would, they were staying at a residential school, many of them, but they would come over and they would speak to her and to me or, and stay overnight at our place. And they would tell stories of what they had been through. And one of those young people had actually lived in a graveyard. And when I think about that, she'd run up because she was running away from, from men who wanted to enslave her and when I think about what she did, that's astonishing to me. I mean, the level of bravery that you would have to have to be able to do something like that. And also the, the depravity of the adults who would, who would force a child into any such situation. You know, it's just so shoddy, so shocking. Anyways, so there was that that made a tremendous impact on me. And she said, she called me her Akka, her, my oldest sister, and she said, will you write my story one day? And I said, I will. And so in some ways, this is a promise that needed to be kept. 
And there's, you know, there's so much else. The other people in the book are based on people that I knew as well. So on the one hand, I think there's a there's a great deal of respect you need to give somebody like that, that that says, would you write about me? That on the other hand, if it's not nonfiction, if it's fiction, there is the responsibility you have to the story as well. And I think of it more as the responsibility I have to the characters who are in my head to tell that story well. And at some stage, I definitely need to think about the reader as well. I don't think about the reader when I write. I think about the reader when I edit. So that's important to me too, because I think you have to be able to spill out and you have to be able to whatever comes into your mouth to channel every, every word that comes in and get it out there on the page. But then you can chop it and, and redo it as you need to uh, chop and redo. You know, I often speak about, um, about puking or vomiting words on the page and then cleaning up with bleach. And I think that that's, <laughs> that's a pretty good metaphor. Yeah, and that's how I think about it. And so at that stage, when it comes time to, to do the bleach clean, to do the edit, you do think about other things. But I think it's important to be as true to the story as you possibly can. And there were certain things I wondered about whether I should change or whether I should not change. And I just felt I couldn't. And I can't explain to you why, but deep inside me, I felt it would be wrong to change certain aspects of the story as it was told to me. Do you account of that with your previous books where even if it's not based on, on a person that you've actually known, but the character uh, wants to behave a certain way, do you still feel that call of responsibility of even if this might work better, this is the, the story the character wants? Um, not quite as much with the others, no, I don't, well, with Island's End to a large degree, because I think there was a tussle at one point, I wondered whether, well, I think I did and my editor did as well, whether there needed to be two voices, and then I think I, it took, one voice took over the story, and I realized that it was her story, not anybody else's place to even be there. You know, it was no one else's place as much. And I think if you if you write multiple points of view, you definitely need it to be equally two other people's stories or three or however many viewpoint characters you have. Each of them needs to be central to what they're saying as well. So they need to be really important in that story. So that's something that is important. The other thing that I think is, is well, um, perhaps, necessary is that when you write and there is there is this feeling that the character is taking off and telling you the story and the character is going on the character is not going to take over your story that you know at, so, at the end of the day at some point you're the one who edits you're the one who decides so i think it's a fine balance between allowing this character to take over your mind and your heart and your soul and being able to tell it in a way that feels true and that is true but there's also you can't use that as an excuse for meandering into all these other places and and losing your way because at the end of the day you are steering that craft of your story you are at the helm of that ship you know, you you are the captain of your ship. You have to you have to get it through, and you can't sort of be bogged down in this in this storm-tossed ocean in the middle of your book, and nobody knows where you're going, and you don't either. That doesn't work. 
Mm -hmm. So I think you, it's, a, it's a fine balance and you need to do both. You, you do need to look and say, yes, I have a responsibility to tell the story as I see it, but I also have a responsibility to tell the story to my readers and to make it readable and to make it um, polish, to polish it. That makes sense. And that's yeah. typically the way it works on this end as well. Although I always tell the uh, uh, famous anecdote that originally the alligator people were supposed to be the villains in the uh, first Banneker Bones book. Uh, and at about, I don't know, 20, 25 pages in, uh, Banneker comes onto the scene and decided to be a jerk. I hadn't planned for him to be a jerk. He just was. And I said, oh, that is the character. And he took the story in a completely different direction. I've never been sorry that that happened because it made a much better book than the, than the book I had planned. Uh, and so I always try to allow at least a little bit for the characters to take over and, and have their say so that if this makes any sense without me sounding like a crazy person, it's as much their book as it is mine. Absolutely. Absolutely. But then again, I think I think at the end of the day, I, I do think um, there is a time that you come in and you, you take the reins. And and yeah. Oh, and sure. No, draft uh, draft two. I was cutting out all sorts of meandering sequences. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's uh, talk a little bit about the narration in the bridge home, because something that fascinates me is this is a first person account uh, from Fiji, the main character. Uh, but she is talking to us, the reader, and we, the reader, are uh, the character of, of Ruku, uh, her, her younger sister, no, sorry, her older sister. Um, why was that perspective important to maintain? What, what, how does it serve the novel without spoiling to put the reader inside the head of Ruku? I think it's there, there's several options. So I'll go back to Climbing the Stairs, my first novel, was something that I had. Struggle. I had a bit of a struggle finding the voice. So I wrote the whole thing out as a diary first, and I felt it was too close. It was just too narrow, the, the focus. And so I rewrote the whole thing uh, in third person, and then it just felt very distant, and it just wasn't the right voice. And then I rewrote the, the entire novel in first person, but it wasn't a diary. And that was the right voice. So it took me a few few reruns of the entire novel, the few rewrites of the entire 500 pages to find that voice. With Island's End, as I just said, I had multiple points of view, then I ended up throwing one of those points of view out. So that was again a major, major rewrite. And that book went through th three complete rewrites too. I often do that. With uh, The Bridge Home, again, I did that, which was kind of silly, but you know, the voice first came to, be, came to me as a novel in verse. So it was written in poetry, and that is the correct um, form for that as far as I'm concerned, because it marries very well with the dance theme. It's about a dancer who loses her leg and continues to dance again. But through that, that process of physical recovery also uh, awakens her own spirituality, comes to an understanding of her own spirituality. Now, spirituality, if we want that to exist without dogma, without religion, without without sermonizing or proselytizing, that needs to then be in that white space. And to me, that's what bursted for that novel, was allow that white space to be the place that I really met the reader. And so, and you know, a novel in verse with the rhythm that is accentuated with poetry, there's also, of course, dance rhythms. And so, you know, that was the perfect medium for that book. And finally, when I started to write 
the bridge home, I just, it was the voice. And I knew it was the voice from the beginning. I, it, it just, I knew one of the sisters was talking to the other sister. And frankly, I needed to find out why as well. And yes, there's all this, in retrospect, we say, oh, this novel was based on so-and-so. But I didn't start out feeling I was going to write this novel about somebody. So I always end up with a voice coming into my head and listening to that voice. And then the voice turns into sort of a ghost that is haunting me. And I can see this person and I can hear this person's voice. And then it's like a somebody who's actually possessing my soul and my, you know, all of me is in that book. My head, my heart, my eyes, my um, my senses, everything. Uh, I, I'm just in that book in a way that's more intense than watching a movie. But I still don't necessarily know in the beginning who that character is or who they're inspired by or any of the rest of it. It's only sort of after I've written out the first draft that I can sit back and say, oh, that was Indra, now I know. You know? And I know now who the other, oh, that was Nagabushan, that was so-and-so, but I can't, I couldn't tell you that when I'm writing the first draft. Makes sense. Well, I've got a, got more questions about the bridge home, but I want to talk about that just a little bit. Um, regular uh, listeners and viewers of the show know how much I love to make fun of Ayn Rand, and, and I never get tired of it. Uh, I always give her props for being an incredible woman of her time who bravely stood up and said, this is what I believe. The world will listen to me, and they did. So Ayn Rand gets that street cred. Beyond that, her ideas were mostly terrible, and I, I hate that she shaped so much of the uh, the financial situation that we're in now. Another, another discussion. But Ayn Rand said something once that uh, was like, oh, even a broken clock is right two times a day. Uh, and she said that when you're working on a novel, if you're showing up and you're putting in the time every day and you're thinking about the characters and the stories, sooner or later you're going to experience where it will feel like magic, that you've got just the right thing that you need to progress the story in some way or progress the character. And that's not magic, that's your subconscious working in all of the uh, time that you're away from your, your story because you're showing up every day, even in your off hours, when you're eating, doing doing fun stuff, reading other people's books, your brain's still working back there unbeknownst to you. And so it can then come up and suggest that. I counter that with, I've had a, a few oddball experiences in my life that, that lead me to believe, not that a muse comes to my office and sits behind me as I write, but that something within the universe offers a bit of feedback. I feel almost when I'm writing as though I'm uh, communing with the divine in some way. And I know I'm aware how woo-woo that makes me sound. I don't care. It, if you're not writing, you don't know. And if you are writing, you probably do. How do you feel about that? Do you feel that there is a muse, that there's something beyond yourself that, that comes passes through you into your novel? Or is it simply what Ayn Rand suggested, your subconscious working and it just feels like magic? You know, I don't know. Um, uh, to me, I could see both. I, think I am a scientist and I'm a, I'm a writer as well. I can fully say uh, perhaps it is the subconscious that, that shows up, uh, but that subconscious, if it is that, feels like magic. It feels like the divine. So to me, it doesn't matter that much whether it really is magic, whether it really is the divine, whether it is the subconscious. What matters is that I love that process. and. That process, I think, makes me a better person. 
And that's part of why I do it. I feel like this is an almost a meditation for me when I write. It's a, it's an act of compassion for me to write. And I think it's an act of compassion when one reads and identifies and empathizes with another character as well. And and that's why I do what I do. I I love it in a way that feels to me the most profound in the sense of deep, one of the most profound experiences that I can have is 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 having that sense that a character has taken me over and understanding that character. So so who knows what it is, but but I think we definitely do, though, I, and I'm sh sure that even Ayn Rand would have to admit this. We do reach for something that is beyond us. We do reach for something that is above us when we write, as in we reach for, for maybe that which makes us particular, but also that which makes us the same. We, we reach for the depth of truth we reach for the for the heights of of compassion even if we are trying to portray characters who aren't compassionate with even if you are trying to portray or trying to show a character who isn't kind in some way when you write you are kind of communing with with that part of maybe yourself or, or someone else and that increases, I think, your human understanding, your your intelligence, if you will, in that way. Human intelligence. I think that makes sense. It's one one of the things I like about writing horrors. I like to write about the folks that are being chased by the zombies or the monsters. But I also like writing from the perspective of the mon of the monster because that allows me to um, indulge in, in things I would never do in real life. And and if I just abandon all of my responsibilities and my my, 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 the things that tether me to, to being a, a hopefully a, a good person. Uh, if I just wanted to be the meanest I possibly could and indulge in the full anger and rage that a lot of us feel at one point or another, and that allows that to kind of run amok. And then I say, ah, I've exercised that for myself for today. It's the esteemed reader's problem. Now I can go back and focus on the nice middle grade ninja fellow that I usually am. Uh, which is just something I find. Um, I have so many more questions about The Bridge Home, but while we're talking a little bit about uh, spirituality, this is a book uh, that's very much um, religiously themed. Um, uh, Vigi is our, our narrator is, is, is exceedingly practical, exceedingly uh, determined and disciplined. She, um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, she reminds me of you, uh, which I'm sure is not a, a coincidence and that she is very, uh, very practically minded, very focused. And she is, uh, or at least she presents as an atheist early in the story. Uh, she, she gives us a, her, her thought about the uh, gods that people are worshiping. Uh, and then they ultimately thought about um, um, uh, Jesus uh, and, and the switch there uh, to uh, Western religion. Uh, and before we talk about, well, she, she's that way, but then there's also another character in the, in the story, Arul, uh, uh, and but I, I'm so sorry, am I pronouncing the name right? Arul, yeah. Arul, there we go. Uh, and Arul uh, has had an experience, um, without spoiling, he lost his family in a very tragic way. Uh, and so uh, something that broke my heart is that he has 
held on to these beliefs that he's gained from a missionary that he's yearning in some ways for death because as soon as he dies, he gets to go up to heaven and be back with his family. That's So his approach to life seems, if, if I'm interpreting correctly, and I'm probably not, uh, but it seems to be a little bit of, okay, well, if we continue to survive, great. If we die, even better, because then I'll be in heaven sooner. And so much of the novel is centered around some of the conversations back and forth between these two and some other events that come and kind of shape um, an argument in one way or another about religion. So I just wanted to ask you just in general terms, when you're talking about uh, religion for the middle grade market, for, for young impressionable readers of diverse backgrounds that are going to come to this, what responsibilities do you have when discussing religion? What is the best way to talk about religion and spirituality with younger readers? I think one thing that it's funny to hear you say that it's uh, it's religious. I didn't think about the religion at all, actually, when I was writing the novel. In fact, when I finished it, I thought it was one. It was the one novel that didn't have that very much, which is odd, I know, because with the others, I think I felt that it was there, and I realized later that, of course, it was that. It's something that I think is part of my life. It's part of my experience. It's something that I think about, and so it plays a part in my novels. And also, I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid of. Well, I'm afraid of some things, but I'm, there's a lot that I'm not that afraid of. I've had several experiences that have taught me to test the limits of my fear as well. And I think one of the things I certainly am not afraid of is discussing religion openly. And I am very open, I think, about religion as well. And, and I wanted to, I see in retrospect, this is me speaking, I think that after having written A Time to Dance, which is about a young girl seeing spirituality through the, the lens of Hinduism. And I do think of, of every religion as just that, as a lens that you see the world through and no more than that. And I think the truth, whatever it is that, that the characters in the bridge home argue about doesn't change. And yes, you have Viji who is just vehemently opposed to the idea of God or a higher power or a higher being of any sort in any religion. And you have Arul who is firmly convinced of the Christian view that he has been given, the Christian view, view that he has grown up with. And each of them remains strong. And I think it's, and I think that's very important that they don't convert each other, that they don't ever try to a little bit maybe, but they don't actually ever succeed in pulling um, that person one way or the other. What they do come to is, is an understanding of one another's views and a respect of one another's views. And that love that they have for each other holds despite that difference. And I think that's one of the most powerful aspects of, of uh, when you write about religion, if you were going to come down forcefully and try to shove a religion down any uh, person's throat, especially a middle grade reader, I think you need to be very, very careful. Because I think a church or a synagogue or a temple or a mosque may be a place for an adult to expound on their religious views. I don't think a book is a place for an, for an adult to do that. I don't think an author especially an author for young people, has a responsibility, I do think, 
to refrain from, from sermonizing. We are not people who give sermons. We should not be people who give sermons. I don't believe that authors should try to educate or to, God forbid, if here I am saying God forbid, God forbid convert someone, someone or try to actively change their religious views. I don't think that's our place. I don't think we should. And so I think if you are going to look at religion or handle religion in any way in your novel, it has to be done with a lot of sensitivity, a lot of understanding and a, a deeply sincere respect of the equality of the, of the, uh, of the absolute right for someone else to have a different point of view. And I think if it doesn't come from that place, a really sincere acceptance, that's not a great idea to put then religion in your novel. If you aren't completely accepting of other people's worldviews, then you need to be very careful what you say and don't say, because the last thing you want is for your novel to become a sermon. The last thing you want is for your novel to be a, some sort of proselytization tool. And to me, the way that I saw Arul, the way that I saw Motu, and Viji and Ruku, there were children who went through those sorts of horrible things that I had met. And, and some of them came out with, many of them came out with these very diametrically opposed views. Some felt firmly, deeply, even more so than before, that their religion was something that gave them strength and solace. And some said, no. And you know, so you see that, and I think it's quite common that if you go through a very difficult experience, you end up on one of those extreme ends of the spectrum. That makes sense. I was particularly struck by a passage, I'd have to pull it up here, um, but at, at one point they, they come across some worms that have uh, come up after a rain, uh, and then they're, the worms are, are struggling and kind of pathetic, and there's no food available for them. They're, they're trying to get back to where they can find some food. Uh, and and um, I think it's our, our, I think it's our rule that has the um, uh, the revelation that maybe we're God's worms, or maybe Muku it's not. Yeah. Oh, okay. Muku said that, um, and Muku says that makes sense. That uh, we're, we're God's worms. God must have he must be so big and have other concerns that he can't worry about us, the little worms, uh, which really stuck with me. Um, I don't know if there's a question in there. I just wanted to tell you I like your book. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, the interesting thing that some some people have asked me why it was Christianity that Arul was, um, you know, why is Arul a member of the Christian faith? And I think that people see it as Western, and it's not. And I mean, I'm the last person that would cater to an audience like that. I think it's very I think it's very important for me in my own uh, self to understand different religions it always has been and i think christianity is part of the indian experience it's part of the south asian experience actually the earliest christians were or some of the earliest christians anyway maybe not all of them were in india so india has had christianity and christians from from way back when um, we actually believe that one of the apostles came to india and so the first Indian Christians were, were happy practicing their religion when in Europe there were no Christians or the few Christians that there were, were being persecuted. And so I think that's something that people don't understand. And some of the Indian Christians are extremely proud of that heritage. They're not converts. 
and they're not, you know, recent converts. They've had that religion for a very, very, for, for centuries. And so there is that religious tradition in India. So that's something that's important. There's certainly other ways to think of the other facets. There was this person, Sister Catherine, who worked with uh, fisher folk when I was in India, somebody else that my mother had actually worked with for a while in our lives. And uh, she, you know, there are scenes near the beach where they see these shacks and so on. And Sister Catherine was there helping the children who went fishing every day. And I think, you know, that had an impact on me as well. And it was, it, it's certainly a tradition that I'm exposed to every day living in this country. It's, I grew up, when I grew up, my last two years of school were at, in a Catholic school, my my years of um, doing my bachelor's degree was at a Catholic institution as well. So there's that. And my husband has a Christian background too. So it's not, you know, it's, it's a religion that certainly I have a lot, a, a lot, not only of familiarity, but also a great deal of knowledge about. And I think a lot of um, uh, um, uh, a substantial experience of, does that make? It does. Yeah. I don't uh, hear you very clearly. In fact, something I, I wanted to make sure I ask you because I feel it's not something I ask every guest, but something that's fair game. I asked Kathy Appelt when we were talking about her book, Angel Thieves, which is also uh, somewhat religiously themed. Um, and I've got a, a post uh, that will be going live at middlegradeninja.com here the week of Easter. Uh, it'll be called Thoughts on God, in which I'm, I've, I've had enough emails about uh, my religiously themed books, the Book of David and the zombie stories. I, I'm not yet comfortable enough discussing religion in middle grade, so neither of the Banneker's features anything uh, religiously oriented. But I have talked about it in horror novels, because I don't know how you do a horror story in Indiana uh, without at some point somebody talking about their religious uh, thoughts. Um, so I'll start. I, I, I believe I've gone back and forth. I have a very religious upbringing. I stepped away from that and went full atheist for a minute, but I've had these experiences in my life that I can't, as much as I'd like to, I can't discount where I very much felt uh, some form of divine uh, intervention, and I have to factor that into my worldview. So I am a begrudging believer in that I would like to sound as smart as Christopher Hitchens, and I don't, <laughs> and I'm aware of that. Uh, because of those experiences I've had, and I feel it's fair game when you've discussed religion openly as you have to ask, what are your views on spirituality, at least at this point, because I know that's an ever evolving subject. I think that there's uh, there's a very beautiful, actually, it's a Hindu prayer um, that we that many of us know. I think that sums up my views on religion, really, and spirituality. It says every human being, every soul, and, you know, I have a, there's a scientist uh, side of me and there are certainly many scientist friends I have. And they say, uh, some of them say to me, if you have a belief in a soul, then you're not really a scientist, in which case <laughs> that it is what it is. Uh, but I do believe that there is something beyond the physical body that we have that makes us alive. And I love this, this poem that says each soul is like a river that takes its own path to the one big ocean. And I love that because I really think of it that way. I think that every human being, no matter what religion you might be in, no matter what religious view you may have or how you may decide to go toward it or away from it, whatever the meanderings are that you, you know, that your soul takes, at the end of the day, we all go to that one same place. And to me, that is an ocean of compassion. 
that we all end up in. We may have different names for it, but to me, those are names. Those, those try to describe that which cannot be described. So you believe there's something greater, but are perhaps not uh, comfortable at this time defining the absolutes of what that may or may not be? Am I hearing that right? Yeah, yeah. And I do think that that with the understanding that everybody has a different idea and a different path uh, and and that people may disagree, I do think that each person has their own evolution, their own way to get to that place. Um, and and that all paths are, are ultimately going to the same place. There's no point. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't. I don't really buy into inequality. I don't like it terribly when people think that they're better off than someone else for any reason, including uh, the religion that they subscribe to. Does that make? That absolutely makes sense. So, what do you think happens when we die, or do you have a thought on the subject? <laughs> I don't know, but I hope we come back, and I hope uh, I hope that whole uh, theory of like Indian coming back for different lives. I would love for that to be true. I'd come back as a writer every time. <laughs> I don't know that I would. I'm having a very good time this time around, but maybe next time I want to try something else. We'll see. <laughs> What's well, uh, Let's uh, move on. I've got so many questions for you. Let's uh, talk about some um, uh, less controversial things about The Bridge Home, starting with the title. I love that title because it, The Bridge Home is literally a good title because it's about four children uh, who live and who make a home under or on a bridge. Um, but then it also has these wonderful metaphorical meanings uh, about what the experience is for our main character without spoiling. So I'm always curious when I see a great title like that, at what point did you come up with the title or was it suggested by someone else? Actually, you know, with Climbing the Stairs, it's um, my first novel, which is set in India in World War II. It looks at this whole, uh, this whole very intense period in Indian history and it looks at a young man who is part of my family uh, who decided to be in this in the Second World War, in the armed forces in the Second World War. Uh, but although it is his story, it's seen through the eyes of my mother, who was a young girl at the time. And it's called Climbing the Stairs because in the house that she lived in, she was forced to live downstairs where the kitchen was. And only the men were allowed to climb up and go upstairs to where the library was in this old home. And it was a big, a big deal that she she would want to go up and get books out of the library. So, you know, to me, climbing the stairs in that case immediately was a fantastic title because it was so literal and it was also so rich in metaphor in so many ways uh, in terms of that whole nonviolence violence divide of you know this young person of uh, finding herself of climbing from you know childhood into adolescence into adulthood. There are so many ways that it works as a metaphor of the of the country of India climbing from being an oppressed, um, subjugated colonial nation into freedom, and you know about that whole um, issue of going, moving from violence to nonviolence, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's, it's a magnificent title, I, and it stayed. Islands End, another title that actually has an end of the island that you're talking about, the end of the island, where they can see from that from that place, 
beyond into the you know the tribe can see the the modern people so in that sense it's actually a very, it's a physical place but it's also the end of the island in a sense because the their way of life is is threatened and you know their society is endangered so all of that it has that sense of the island perhaps ending and how how that might happen so it it's metaphorical as well in that sense a time to dance again that's a quote from the christian scripture from the bible and it's uh, it's beautiful you know that piece about it every um there's a time for every season under heaven and it's it's a quote that then works itself into the book it is part of what one of the characters sees and it made a perfect title for the for that uh, book as well and what it was about when it came to the birch home i told you i wrote it i i knew the voice was right but i definitely did not have a title and i could not think of a title and it had a working title that my editor nancy paulson said she said this reads like a classic but you know it reads like one of those classics that you look back and you think what was the title again because it's such a forgettable title and so and i've forgotten actually what it was and and well, God bless the editor who has the uh, yeah. <laughs> has the forthrightness yeah. to say something that direct to you. Oh, she's. I mean, we've worked together for so long. I think we're quite honest with each other. So, um, she she came up with a list of titles. You know, I brainstormed some titles, and then uh, she was the one who finally came up with that combination. <coughs> <coughs> Excuse me. So, hats off to her. Well, Nancy, if you're watching, you're listening, and you always wanted to come on a podcast, I'd be thrilled to uh, talk with you sometime. Please get in touch with me. Um, while we're talking about just surface things about the novel, something else that I usually don't comment on, uh, but I really love the cover for this novel, which, of course, I would. It's dark in characters against a bright background, which, if anybody has paid attention to the covers I've, I've helped uh, had input in designing uh, over the years, is something that very much resonates with me. How much input did you have on the cover? I love the cover, and this was also the first cover that I just completely fell in love with from the beginning. Uh, you know, I had I'd seen sketches, and there was a debate as there were three sketches, and some question as to which sketch we would pick, but the differences were quite minor, frankly. And I loved this view. So the artist had drawn sort of the same bridge, but you know, a couple of different views, and said, "What would you like?" I like this view a lot. It was also what my editor loved the most. So we went with that. I think my agent weighed in as well, Rob Weisbach, and we loved that cover. With the other covers, I had more of a dif difficulty with, we went through several iterations of every other cover, but it seems like for this novel, everything just fell into place, except of course for that title, which, you know, again, it fell into place as soon as Nancy chose it, but. Uh, was the, the, the title come along after the cover? No, the title came along before the cover. Okay. I was like, what, what amazing uh, foresight for the cover illustration. <laughs> Put a bridge on there. But, you know, what you talked about with the cover having, uh, oh, sorry, the title having this physical and this metaphorical resonance, I really wanted that because I felt like all of my other titles had had that. So every other title was had a meaning that was physical, literal, and tangible, but also had a meaning that was metaphorical. And that was something that required, as I said, a little bit more work and a little more help with this one. But when it 
came, then I liked that a lot. Because, you know, the word home could be the bridge to home. It could, it could act as a verb as well as a noun. And I love that ambiguity. Something else uh, about the novel um, that, that I noted immediately is this could very easily be used in a school setting uh, as a means to talk about the culture of India. Um, there are several uh, things throughout. We, we learn about some of the gods. Um, I know uh, Indira Gandhi uh, comes up at, at one point. Um, uh, the caste system is, is referenced um, periodically. Um, so I'm always curious, what is the balance? Because this doesn't read like a homework assignment where, okay, here I am, a young reader, time to learn about India. It's just information that's scattered throughout with a great narrative to pull any reader through with these universal experiences. So what is the, or is there a, a proper um, ratio for how much information to impart to make sure that you are teaching the reader about another culture uh, versus telling that story? And, and when do you know where you're going too far one way or the other? I think anytime you start to think that you're teaching, you have to stop. So I think only what is natural in the story. So everything that you speak about, the gods, the the caste system, the setting, for instance, and everything else, all of that is, is what the characters um, experience. So none of that is explained. So the character will never, you know, neither Ruku nor Viji nor Mutu nor Arul will sit down and tell you, um, hey, look, this is what this is all about. Or some, and so I think that's the difference. I think you just have to, and it happens naturally. So the book is set in India where I grew up. It, the story comes from India. It's, it was born there. It has, it's integrated with that culture and that setting. And so that milieu is then reflected in everything that the novel is about, and the story then uh, references that, because that is sort of the ambiance that is part of that story. It's kind of an integ integral part of that whole story. So I think if you start thinking you have to insert these bits in, and for then, or maybe, you know, who knows, maybe maybe other authors work differently. So I shouldn't speak for everyone. But for me, I think if I were to, to sit there and think, hmm, what is she eating? Is she eating something Indian? Oh, maybe not. Maybe I should put something Indian in. That feels forced. But of well, course. they're largely eating bananas through most of the novel. We have those here. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so, you know, um, that's, I guess, when that happens, or it just has to feel integral to the novel. It has to feel integrated with everything else and not like information stuffed in. And I do think there's something to be said for, for knowing that your story, for believing, for trusting that your story will carry the reader through, even if at times they don't fully get a particular reference. If you were speaking about some kind of food, for instance, you know, in the beginning, in the first scene in the novel, uh, sorry, um, Viji walks in and she smells uh, piasam, which her mother has been making. And we know that from what she says, we know it's sweet. It's, we know it's syrupy. We know that there's, there's a smell of milk. So we know there's milk in it. We know there's sugar in it. We don't need to have the recipe for piasam. We don't need to know how long she's been cooking it on the stove. And you know what I mean? We don't need to know all the different spices that go in. We have enough information. And for somebody who knows what that word is, who knows what piasm is, it makes complete sense. 
For someone else, they know enough that it makes enough sense for them to continue. And that makes sense. You don't want to grind the, the, the story to a halt to simply discuss the food that's being right. eaten. There's, there are more interesting things to come. Right. You never want to halt your story and explain. Yeah. Oh gosh, so many questions about this book, and I'm I'm watching the clock, and I know our our time is moving right along faster than I'd like it to. Um, I wanted to talk about uh, Vigi a little bit, uh, in that uh, she's extremely practically minded, and she seems, in her way, is very devoid of sentimentality. She doesn't, she does not want to ever be seen as a beggar. She refuses charity. Uh, she's very much can do. She will find a way um, for her and, and, and for Ruku to, to get what they need and to take care of themselves. Uh, and the book, uh, I don't know if, as it, if it's as a consequence of that, seems to lack a bit of sentimentality. There are uh, scenes just of endless, uh, Dick, almost Dickinson, Dickensian uh, is the word I'm looking for, uh, Dickensian tragedy throughout because we are dealing with orphans and extreme uh, adverse uh, situation. Um, there are several scenes that if it were a lesser writer, maybe such as myself, would have gone through and made, okay, well, this needs its own separate chapter so we can really get the reader invested and hopefully make them cry. You, the author, wanting to um, not uh, engage with that, how much that is simply because the narrator wouldn't want that? It's both. It's both, I think. In this case, the narrator wouldn't want that, and she's not a sentimental person. And I also think we, as authors, have to keep sentiment out of it. I think um, I didn't ever want it to be mushy. I didn't ever want anything to 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 um, to to feel like I, I wanted to make the reader cry. Now I'm delighted every time. It sounds horrible, but I am delighted every time somebody says that they cried because then it means it touched them. And I also hope very much that everybody laughed because there are parts of it that are funny to me. And I love it when I see a kid who is also laughing out loud in certain uh, portions of the, of the novel. And so I think I wanted both to be there. I wanted that humor and that sadness. But I think to, to, when sadness has to have a punch, it cannot be sentimental. To have you know, real power, you can't, be, you can't wade into that morass of of maudlin sentimentalism. There has to be, I think sometimes, and it's it's a hard balance, but, and I have to be, you know, less can be more, but ultimately I think if you've set your characters up enough, if people are invested enough in the characters, then they will feel what the character feels. And you have to trust that. You can't want to take them there. When do you know that you have it? When do you have the confidence that you've uh, made your character sympathetic enough that you don't need to show us all of that sentimentality to know that you've touched the reader? I don't know. I think it's partly intuition and partly, partly intuition, partly experience, partly, I think if you read and read and read, and, you know, you were talking about me being a, a scientist, which I am, and loving mathematics. But I also, when in my spare time, I see some people who love mathematics enough that they'll do it in their spare time. They'll spend all their time doing puzzles or, you know, Sudoku or straights or whatever else it is. 
Uh, but I'm not one of those people. So in my spare time, I always read poetry and novels. And I think that's why I could write at the end of the day, because I love writing and I've read and I've read and I've read and I've read. So every spare moment that I had, I mean, I did other things. I love to be outdoors and so on and so forth. But but I also love to read. So I always was reading all my life. I've been reading. And I think that also gives you a sense that you may not even know, but it almost is your internal editor or it's it's a guide, it's a compass that you sort of internalize that helps you when you're writing to know when to push and when to pull back. To know how much to give. So something that's kind of just earned us here from your love of books. Well, with the time that we have left, let's let's turn to just a little a few craft questions. Um, how much what 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 does your average day look like how much of your time are you spending actually writing and how much how how often do you read how often do you read i read all over the place uh, and so I, I i don't know i read I, I read so much i read now i'm finally starting to even read newspapers from all over the world again which i used to do a long time ago and then i stopped um, I used to read several newspapers every day in different languages too, and now I'm trying to start doing that again. So that will be nice. Um, I enjoy doing that. I read, I read a lot of novels. I also read a lot of poetry, which I love. I read old books. I read new books. I read books for adults. I read books for young people. I so there's no particular genre or or anything, but I'm kind of moody. So if you go in, if I go into a library, which I go into a library or a bookstore, then I pick whatever strikes my fancy, and I always have a huge to-be-read pile. That's sometimes based on what people have said. Sometimes it's people that I know who've written a book or or something. So I have all. I read nonfiction too. So that's important because. Many people don't read nonfiction. I read a lot of nonfiction as well, literary nonfiction I like. And so I have all of that going. And that was your second question. And your first question was about my day. And for a very long time, uh, when I had stepped back from my oceanography career, and I was, uh, uh, so I'm uh, in another sense, a full-time mother or uh, the parent at home who is the one that does most of the child responsibilities. And so because of that, um, because of that sort of childcare component, I can never be sure if a day is going to be, for instance, a snow day here in Rhode Island. Sometimes we have snow even in April. And so- Unfortunately, we have that here in Indiana as well. Right, and so then I would be the one who would stay home. So I can never be certain. But when I do have time, those precious hours that now I have when Everybody's away from the house. Those are the hours that I then work and I write. So I try very hard to write uh, and keep that sacrosanct. I didn't have that for a long time. So for, uh, when I was um, when my when I was sort of uh, staying home with my child, with my daughter, then I ended up not having those times at all. So we would do so much together that it would give me very little time to write. When that happened, I would stay in touch with my characters mentally. So I would always connect with them. And I think the best advice I have for people who have very little time is to stay in your book and to let the book stay in you, just in your heart and in your head as much as you can, even if you can't get it down on paper. 
I always have a notebook next to my bed. So I sometimes write before I go to sleep or when I wake up early in the morning. So those are times that I might just scribble down thoughts or something. I take a book with me wherever I go. If it's you know on holiday somewhere, I still have a book with me that I can scribble in. So that's something that's important. And I do you do most of your drafting by hand or are you, do you no, type? No, now I type. I mean, and even with my first book, I started typing. And I, I do type on the computer and more my books are on the computer. So I have that with me as well whenever I go. But I'm not a person who can like, as yet, I can't write notes on the, on the cell phone. That just doesn't work for me. So that's what my notebook is for. But I think staying in touch with your characters as much as you can. And, you know, my books take a long time, but that's okay. Because at the end of the day, I think family comes first. And if I didn't do these other things, then I would miss out on portions of my child's life, which I don't want to do. No, there isn't a book worth missing, missing out on that. No. But, uh, one more question on, on, on reading, and then I'm going to ask you about flying saucers, because I know esteemed audience desperately wants to know. Uh, but about reading, uh, you've spoken elsewhere about uh, racism's problematic predominance in classic literature and a lot of other isms uh, as well. Uh, I know that um, uh, classics like The Secret Garden, uh, you know, are classics for a reason, um, but they've got problematic elements in there. One of my, my, my very favorite author, uh, when I was the age for middle grade books, uh, was Roald Dahl. Uh, and I, I did a podcast not long ago on uh, Dream Gardens uh, podcast with Jody Lemont. And I picked The Witches, which is my all time favorite middle grade book growing up. And I was getting prepared. I'm like, I haven't read this in a few years. I better read it again. And I was reading other articles about it, talking about how sexist it was. I was like, no, not my beloved Roald Dahl. And then I read it again. I was like, oh, no, that's pretty sexist right there. Um, so what is the proper way to deal with these classics of literature um, for young readers? Because we don't want to forget where we where we've been, where we've come from. But how do we discuss these books as classics without also discussing all the, all the, but by definition, the progress that's come since then? I think you need to discuss that. I think, uh, you know, I wrote, I wrote a blog post for the Nerdy Book Club that I encourage everyone who's listening to this podcast to just Google Nerdy Book Club and uh, my name, Padma Venkatraman, and, um, Classics, Colonialism, and a Call for Change. I think that was the name of the of the blog post that I wrote. And I think that's an important blog post that I did. It doesn't say anything about my own work, but I think it says a lot that needs to be heard. But I, I do think that some things that we can do when children have books like that are to make sure that we discuss them, to discuss these elements in them after the child finishes reading the book. and. You know, it's easy with certain children. It may not be easy with other children, but somehow, somewhere, you need to actually have that conversation about that book. Because otherwise, if it's a child like um, my own child, then maybe they will look and, and understand the racism because they have experienced it. But if it's a child who has never experienced racism, then what they are imbibing is that it's fine to be like that. It's okay to have this protagonist, this hero who is racist. And that's not a great message to give to a child. And I think that's what we're doing. All these other subtle isms that are in these books are also then being imbibed and being inculcated in a way. Maybe not inculcated as too much, maybe just imbibed and then become potentially seeds of insidious prejudice. 
that we may not even be aware of. And so I think we need to just be careful of that to have conversations that are open about the topic in general, about the book in particular, if that's possible. And of course, that always um, is a problem that one faces when one has a reader that is a voracious reader, which is a fantastic problem to have, is that the child then starts to read so much that you can't possibly keep up with the child. But then you may need to have conversations about these topics very openly and say these things show up in many of these books. And for instance, I've read that blah, 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 in which it shows up. Has it shown up in any of your books or whatever else? So that we have that, that give and take, you have that discussion, you at least open it and allow, in that particular case, it's not through a book. So I think it's fine to educate and to have that conversation and that discussion with a child. In fact, it's very important. It's vital. I don't think you should go on without that discussion. I do think it's it's imperative to to have that discussion be part of what's going on. With some of these classics, I do wonder if we need them. I also think there are ways to pair books. So if you have The Catcher in the Rye, for instance, which is about a young white man who comes from a very wealthy background doing things that only he can do because nobody of color would be allowed to do that in this country and nobody who is a first generation immigrant would dare to do anything like he does because we would be on the next boat back home if we tried and you know so there's sort of a level of privilege that that book reflects that needs to then be examined that needs to be discussed and then maybe there's a way to pair it with another book if you're going to read joseph conrad's heart of darkness for instance which is written in very lyrical language, but reduces the entire continent, the continent of Africa, to one sort of uh, blotchy, smudged, blurred backdrop to a white man's descent into insanity. Then I think you need to read Chinua Achebe to balance that, things fall apart. Or somebody else, there are so many other brilliant African authors, Nnedi Okorafor, um, there are others as well that I, you know, that I can think of and that I don't necessarily want to all list, but there's so many other people that you can that you can think of and read. And so I think if you're going to read that or if you're going to read about India as seen through this prejudiced white, woman's eyes, then you need to read an own voices book. If you're going to read The Secret Garden, which was written by this person who had a colonial idea of things, then read The Bridge Home. Read a book that, that does that. And I do think with these classics, you don't need to buy the classics, borrow classics from the library, buy the books of living authors. And I mean, I say that now, and it might sound like a joke, but it is so true because more and more we're starting to see human beings who don't understand that if you are going to appreciate and, and enjoy or, under, or um, experience essentially something that is given to you by somebody who has created something, by somebody who's creative, then you need to support that person's creativity, not, not, um, not take it for granted, not and I think that's that's something that's important as well. I think you know supporting independent bookstores, supporting supporting people, is is important. So I think classics. There are plenty of them in the library. Read them. I have no problem with you downloading a classic free of charge. I have no problem 
with you doing any of that because I think um, I don't really I love that you compared my work to Dickens and um, you know the the bridge poem has been called actually Oliver Twist meets Slumdog Millionaire which I thought was a it was a very um, kind of an apt description a catchy description of the book but you know if Dickens's great grand 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 child doesn't get a cut of his royalties I couldn't care less. <laughs> no, here, here. I agree with you. Buy our books. So, I 100% endorse that. Yeah, I mean, I do think, you know, the books of living authors and then go to the library to read the dead ones. We need to keep our libraries up. I think libraries are so important. This is National Library Week. And I think we have to support that as well. And uh, I think I think that's, that's something else that you can do. To, and then, you know, ultimately, you are the one that makes the classics of tomorrow. You make those choices. Do you think these classics have enough in them that they need to be read and read? I mean, not, I'm not talking about all of them. At, I'm talking about all of them now at one shot. And there are obviously exceptions. And my exceptions will not be your exceptions, et cetera, et cetera. But can we make a concerted effort to question whether these classics need to be classics, whether we really love them enough to pass them on, or whether there are maybe new books that are equally as interesting that we then read. So invest time in reading new books that are out there, especially for children, because maybe you can put a book that isn't a classic into a child's hands and it will do exactly what that classic did for you. So look at what's coming out now, what has been around for a while, and maybe put those books into children's hands. I mean, Mildred Taylor's uh, Roll of Thunder, Hear Me Cry. Why don't we have that more often? Why, you know, yes, fine, Huck Finn. Huck Finn, again, being one, one idea, one uh, view only, and somebody else is completely silenced, then give, give respect to that silenced voice by having at least a few other authors from that silenced community. Because let's not also just have one author from a particular community and pretend that we're being diverse because, what, there's just one African-American author in this world today? No, there are so many. And I think that's important as well. So when we respect diversity, we need to respect diversity in all those forms. And if, until now, for in large part, the classics have all been written by white people. So I think if we're going to have that many voices, we're seeing the diversity in that Eurocentric view. Let's also see the diversity in every non-Eurocentric view as well, in every sub-community that we can think of, in every culture that we can think of. Uh, let's be truly multicultural, let's be truly diverse, and let's let's examine that as well. And again, I do think there are so many brilliant books that have been written since the classics that we can create new classics to go with some of the old ones as well. I'm taking uh, one more question on the, on the back of that, and then I've got two more questions for you, and we'll call it a, a podcast. Um, but uh, with the hope, uh, I always joke that the moment I'm dead, all of my books will become beloved across all cultures. They're all going to be made into films and celebrated forever. Uh, and if that's not true, I probably won't know about it. It's fine. Um, but how do we, since future generations, by definition, will be more progressive than we are at this point? I, I say optimistically, because I hope that they'll know more, they'll be smarter. What's the best way to ensure that we're writing books that might have a better shot at standing the test of time so we won't be on the problem list? I think you can only write from your heart. And I think the best way to write a book is to write the best book you can 
you know, we've spoken about writing the best book you possibly can for the characters. I feel sort of a responsibility to the characters in my head to write the best book I can for them. And beyond that, I can't think. When I start to think, and I think it's easy to spoil your own writing and to, to, to sort of, uh, to, you know, to not draw from the right place if you start thinking too much about how your book may or may not do. So we have this uh, term which comes up actually in a time to dance. It's called karma yoga. That means you do your best and you put every fiber of your being, you put every bit of your blood and your sweat into your work. You pour your emotion into it. You pour your intelligence into it. You pour your time and your energy into it. And then you let go and you you may guide that, but I'm certainly not saying you let go to the point that you know you don't help your novel out as much as you can once it's there. But you have to not be not be worried too much. You have to find a place, and it's so hard to do. And I don't do it all the time, and I don't do it well all the time. Is to not worry about or not to be affected by how it does or doesn't do in the world. To not allow the material success, the material rewards, or lack thereof, to affect you as a writer, and to keep on putting, you know, your best foot forward, to keep on writing the best you can write, and not worry about how it may or may not do in the future and even in today's marketplace. And it's easy to say that, and it's very hard to do. But I think that's that's all you can do as a writer, is to write the very best book you can and and then hope for it. You know, pray for it, hope for it. I think that's a good play, about as good a spot as we could hope to end. But I wouldn't be doing my job, and I wouldn't be the middle grade ninja if I didn't ask. Uh, Dr. Padma Vinkachaman, have you ever seen a flying saucer, and do you believe in them? <laughs> uh, no, I haven't ever seen a flying saucer. I, you know, I would love to. I'd, I'd love to to think that we're not alone out there in the universe, and that there are other nice human or not so human beings somewhere. I would love that. I'd love to think of how large the universe is, and time and space, and and think there's somebody else out there. Uh, that said, I know that the project in Arizona, you know those big telescopes that show up in the movie Contact in the book? Uh -huh. Yeah, that was a project that was uh, out there to try to find intelligent life, SETI, and uh, nothing's happened yet. So as a scientist, I think the chances are pretty slim, but as an author, I, Love that idea. I think that's as fair an answer as we can hope for. Uh, Padma, where can esteemed audience find more about you online? Where can they stalk you and find all your books? Um, my my website is a good place to start, www.padmavenkatraman.com, and um, V-E-N-K-A-T-R-A-M-A-N, and people often spell that wrong. Uh, and Padma, of course, my first name is just P-A-D-M-A. So my website is a place that has information. You can't buy my books through that. 
but my books are available anywhere. Penguin Random House is my publisher, has always been my publisher, is the person who published all of my novels. So um, yeah, if you put your my, my titles in and my name in, you could find that. And I am on Twitter. And on Twitter, my handle is at Padma, P-A-D-M-A-T-V, like television. And that's because uh, T and V are my last, uh, my initials of my middle name and my last name, but I didn't even think of it. So I don't have a television at home, but at Padma TV is my Twitter handle. And venkatraman.padma is how you'll find me on Facebook or Instagram. So those are other ways to connect with me. I'm learning to navigate Instagram. I'm not there all the time, and I don't know too much about that, but I'm there. And, you know, I think I have a YouTube channel, too, um, which may get used more frequently because uh, The Bridge Home is a global read-aloud. So I'm very excited about that. It's uh, one of, it's the middle grade um, read-aloud for this year. So it'll be read by schools around the world, which makes me very, very honored. Um, well, that's very exciting. Yep. Well, I'm, of course, I'm available at middlegradeninja.com. Follow me on Twitter at MGNinja. Make sure you download your free copy, free ebook copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. Don't forget to come back on Thursday because we're going to have literary agent Holly Root here. Um, Papa, this has been a wonderful conversation. I can't thank you enough for making the time to do this. I have learned so much about writing. I re-listen to all these shows. That's the gift they give back to me as I get to come back in here and really analyze this advice. And I know this is one I'm going to listen to at least six or seven times. Fast forward through the parts where I'm talking and, and, and relearn all the things you said. Um, been asking our guests to sign us off. Our sign-off phrase is hiya and what have you. When you sign us off, <laughs> Hiya and what have you.